We are live on the air, and I have never been so excited to be sitting in front of a microphone talking to the world. I mean, have you ever seen me this excited? Uh, no, I guess not. <laughs> no, here's the truth, man. I didn't sleep a wink last night because you were tossing and turning. Oh, it's my yeah. fault. No, is it? you got up at what time? I got up at three, but I tiptoed. How I is this right? Do you remember, you like, when we were? By the way, I'm Sean. This is Gene. We are sharing a bed because we've been married for 27 years. <laughs> just to clear the air on Christian radio. 27. It hasn't been 27. No, no, we've been married for 26. We have not been sharing a bed for 27. <laughs> I've known you for 30. Yeah. I keep thinking the next anniversary is 27, is it? Or is it 26? 26. 26 26 years. is next month. I've known you for 30, 31. I know. And we still look like children. How's that possible? Yeah, no, that's not happening at all. And the older <laughs> we get, the older we get, our, our children are now older than when we met. Yes. Or our one oldest, of them is. Our oldest daughter is 20. 20, and we met when we were 18 and 19. Yeah. Isn't that weird? It's very strange. It was funny. I was watching all the back-to-school photos appear on social media mm-hmm. this past fall when kids were going back to school. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why moms do that. You know, line up their kids on the front door with their new school we love clothes. It. Yeah, I don't know why though. It's we weird. Moms love no, it's it. totally weird. No, it's no not. you line up the kids on the front porch with their new backpacks and their new school clothes. Uh-huh. And you take a picture of them. Always. Why? Because it's it's like a rite of passage. And then when you look at all the years in a row, you can see how the kids have changed from year to year. Do the kids like it? My kids didn't. They hated it. No, so I, don't I know think about every child likes it. Did your parents do that? You guys in the control room, did they take a picture of you on the first day of school every year? They did? Reuben, did they take pictures of you on the first day of school? No. No, no but I can see why your parents wouldn't want pictures of you. Yeah. <laughs> That's not nice. No, write your letters of complaint to Gene Boonstra, Box 999. Loveland color. No, he's well, a our... he's a strapping. He's a strapping young man we and handsome. Ruben. We love Ruben. We love Ruben. And I would I have a picture of you on my fridge. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Is that weird? That's weird. That's weird. Yeah. That's weird. Well, our daughter's What's that? Oh, he's trying to he's trying to respond. What's that, Ruben? What's that? I said that's disturbing. Yeah, it is kind of disturbing. <laughs> we have a shrine to Ruben in our house. Okay, so but, so here, let me get back to the point. Let me get back to the point. Oh, oh, pictures of kids. What did you want to say? Nothing. It's no, no, totally go ahead. Fine. No, no. Well, no, I was just going to say that our, our girls didn't like it for different reasons. Naomi didn't like it because she didn't like having to pose for a picture. Natalie, who loves the camera, didn't like <laughs> yes, it. Yes, she does. <laughs> she didn't like it because I was holding her back from going into the school to socialize with her friends. Oh, wait a so, minute. You drove anyway. to the school and then took the picture? Sometimes. I did it both ways, mostly at home, but the odd time I did it in front of the school. Did yeah. you hear my computer ping? I did. Yeah, Come it's on. telling me I'm supposed to be you know somewhere else right that. now. You know, I'm going to turn the volume down. Okay. So, here's the here's the story that was going to come out of all of that. Okay. I'm looking at mothers, never fathers. Mothers are all posting these pictures on social media. And here's one mom that's like um, posting pictures of her kids, and my kid is now in 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And I thought. That's weird. So I, I, I dropped her a little note and said, the last time I saw you, you were in 12th grade. <laughs> right. And that is the last time that I saw her. Uh-huh. So we aren't the young people anymore. And do you remember true. when you were 20 that you Very could true. sleep till noon if you had a day off? Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that's now, never Now, if happens. I've got nothing booked in the morning. Well, no. Okay. If I'm really busy, I typically get up at 430. 
right? Mm-hmm. And if I'm not busy and can sleep in, guess what time I get up? 7.30. No, 4.30. Oh, well, it's, oh. but then sometimes we'll go back to sleep. I remember recently we'd been had a really hectic schedule, and we had nothing on the schedule for Friday morning. And Thursday night we both said, oh, man, maybe we can sleep in in the morning. And we were awake really early, but then we fell asleep again till 7.30. No, you fell asleep again. we were ecstatic. Again. You fell asleep again. <laughs> I laid awake staring at the with the weight of the world on my shoulders. Oh, okay. That's how it went. Yeah. Got it. So, all right. Well, listen, I am cranky today, and I can't even remember how we got started, but I didn't sleep much last night because you were restless at 3 a.m. And you went, I don't know where you disappeared to. Where did you go to? Uh, I went downstairs, and I, what, sometimes when you change locations and I find something to listen to that you know, distracts me from whatever I'm thinking about, I can fall right back to sleep. But I found a podcast and it was really interesting and I didn't fall back to sleep because it was interesting. Unlike this show. I love this show. No, people listen to this show to fall asleep at night. No, they don't. Yes. (laughs) Not when you're talking. You're very interesting. But all right. We should probably get on with them. People really don't care how cranky I am. Yes. What's our topic today, Well, this is a part two. Mm -hmm. And so if you do podcasts and listen to this show as a podcast, I think you ought to push pause and go back can get part one definitely the the, the series title wasn't supposed to be a series but you know we talk so much that it's becoming a series (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think this is worth slowing down and looking at though the topic is the temple and the last days uh, because there's a million opinions on the temple in jerusalem and its role in last day events Mm -hmm. uh, but that multiplicity Hey, that's word of the day. That's a $5 word right there. The multiplicity (laughs) of views on that is relatively recent. We talked about that when we looked at this last time, that really only since the middle of the 19th century have we had a world of ideas. And one of the ideas that rose to the surface late in Christianity, and I'm talking again the 1830s onward, is this idea known as dispensationalism. And we looked at it a little bit, John Nelson Darby, and I think it was, well, it was in the 1830s anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that God treats Jews and Christians differently. Now, a lot of people aren't aware that that was sort of at the the idea at the birth of this system of thought, but Christians are going to go to heaven and Jews inherit the earth and they never have to spend eternity together and uh, treats Gentiles and Jews completely different. And we were looking at that last time, and we were, you know, bothered by the idea that this is all brand new in Christianity, and it runs contrary to a number of ideas. Number one, Darby would have said that in the Old Testament it was a covenant of law, and you were saved by being obedient, and in the New Testament we're saved by grace, which Mm -hmm. is just utterly false, and we may unpack that at some time. Everybody has always been saved by faith. Same way, yeah. from Through the grain. beginning yeah. of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it worked differently. I mean, it worked the same, but the way that we learned about God's grace and mercy was different in the New and the Old Testament, right. just ever so slightly. Um, so we looked at that, and the idea that this separation um, of Jew and Gentile was really a new idea, and the idea that God takes the church out of the world at the very end is a new idea, mm-hmm. and that um, the Old Testament prophets could not see the New Testament era, and that Bible prophecy in the Old Testament was only for the Jews, a new idea. And we, we discussed it a little bit that, you know, Daniel clearly saw the New Testament era, so that can't possibly be true. Right. And we talked about, what else did we talk about last time? Oh, you know, Israel becoming an estate in 47, because people believe that if the last seven years of Earth's history are just for the Jews, the temple needs to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind mm-hmm. of looking at that role. And then we got down to the big concept in our last episode known as the abomination of desolation. 
And uh, I think we were talking about this idea that in a lot of modern interpretations of Bible prophecy, especially the sort of religious fiction books and movies about the last days, you get this idea that the abomination of desolation and the big problem in the world is outside of the community of God's believers. Mm -hmm. And we discovered that's not true. Uh, not biblically speaking, the problems described in the Bible are not external problems, they're internal problems. And we went all the way back to the coronation of Saul, the first king of Israel, mm -hmm. um, and how Israel was basically saying, please give us a king like the nations around us. And that was a mistake because they were supposed to be a light to the nations around them, and all the Gentiles were supposed to come and pray at the temple in Jerusalem if mm -hmm. they'd done their job right. But instead, we want to be like them, and we become like them. And, uh, and then the kings become more and more and more and more wicked. And so after years, God says, look, if you don't want me, I'll leave. And his presence had literally been in the temple up to that point, and he just leaves. And so it's the abominations of God's own people that caused the desolation of the temple. And to anchor all of that, we were in Isaiah looking at a handful of verses that we never got through, and we'll return to those again today um, in Isaiah chapter 1. But the big idea again last time it is not some outside force like the Assyrians who attack the northern tribes or the Babylonians who attack Judah. It's not the outside force that God calls the abomination of desolation, but it's the sins of God's own people that God calls the right. abomination of desolation. It's the abomination, literally, that causes the desolation of the temple. It's a rejection of God and his covenant. And we looked at the idea that that's the way the original Old Testament ends, because the books used to be ordered differently so that the last thing you read in the Old Testament was the wicked kings of Israel in 2 Chronicles 36, and then God uses Nebuchadnezzar, ironically, a Gentile outsider, as his servant. That's the word that's used. And he comes and lays siege to Jerusalem and leaves the temple desolate, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then in various places, uh, like Jeremiah 25, we see that he is called, Nebuchadnezzar, that is, is called God's servant, servant. Yeah. right? So mm -hmm. that was the first desolation. We also looked at the second desolation of the temple. We, You were reading last time, Matthew 23, where Jesus is lamenting again the sins of God's own people. So why don't we start there today, and let's look at that again in Matthew 23, mm -hmm. verse 37. Okay. This is now just on the eve of the second desolation of the temple, and we'll use this as an anchor for our study today. Matthew 23. Go ahead, Jean. Okay, you want me to read that yeah, again? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Go ahead. So this is Jesus is sharing this, and this, of course, he's, he's talking about what will happen in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. So Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing we see there that love and that compassion that jesus has for right. the city which of course is the people verse 38 see your house is left to you desolate there's that term again there's right? the word mm -hmm. uh, right Outside forces actually do the task of pulling down the temple, but they are not the cause of the desolation, the true cause of the desolation, God's own people. And as, as you said earlier, that was the case when the temple was destroyed in Old Testament times as well. It was exactly. the sins of the people they had rejected following God's plan for their lives. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So so most popular books, though, Sean, as we talked about this a little bit on part one of the program, this is not how we kind of understand what's happening. Most popular books and movies, they describe the abomination of desolation as a foreign dictator who moves in to 
rebuild the temple or one who rises to world prominence as a global dictator. Any which way you describe it, it's always described as an outside problem. Right. And that was really our big point. If you Mm -hmm. read all of Bible prophecy, and you really need to read it all, it is not good enough to take a passage out of the book of Revelation and build a theory of Bible prophecy. That's the wrong way to approach it. Two-thirds of the language in Revelation is borrowed from the Old Testament. And if you really want to understand what John is writing, you have to read the whole Bible. And when you read the whole Bible, there's this consistent story. It is addressed to God's people. It is talking about the problems among God's own people. And it's not, well, it mentions the sins of outsiders. That's clearly there. The main thrust of the Bible is to describe the sins of God's own people. And when it comes to this concept of desolation, there's this consistent story. Under Eli, they take the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence among his people. They carry it into battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines take it. They take the Ark. And so the temple is left desolate, or the Mm -hmm. tabernacle. Then we've got the Babylonian captivity, the sins of God's own people, lead once again to the desolation of the temple. God moves out, and the Babylonians can have their way. Then you've got the Roman sack of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the passage you were just reading where Jesus is weeping that this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And again, it's because of the sins of God's own people. That's the picture all the way through, and that should give you a big hint that when you get to Revelation and they use the language of the Old Testament, that the problem in the end is among God's own people again. Not really. Now, the outside world is wicked and lost, no question about that. But the big problem in prophecy comes from within, from inside. The the music is playing. What do you guys want me? Are we out of time or is that just the first segment? Did I talk for an hour? (laughs) No. No. All right. That's the first segment. We're going to take a little break and come back and discuss more about the temple and the last days. As you may know, the Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com give. Most of us have lost a loved one to death, and the question we wrestle with in our mind is what exactly happens when we die? Do we go to heaven or do we go to hell as some people believe? Find the Bible's answer to this question in our free Discover Bible Guides. You can get them at VOP.com, click on the tab that says Study, or just call us at 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933. Do you know what I find particularly disturbing today? Uh, what? Is the glee with which you entered the studio and realized that we are matching. <laughs> yes, because you get so upset when we match. You don't <laughs> like it, and I love it. I don't like it at all. You're wearing a purple jacket, and I've got purple in my shirt that matches. Yeah. What do you know? Yeah, and, and, you, and my, why does that thrill you so much? You know why? Because it annoys you so much. Really? And so I love it because it annoys See, you. I, I bought you a T-shirt. I was in Philadelphia working, mm-hmm. and I went down to the Constitutional Center. They have a gift store, and I bought myself a Liberty T-shirt, and I bought you an identical one. But I made you promise that you would never wear it on the same day. <laughs> and lo and behold, what do you do a few days ago? You see that I'm wearing, and you wait to the last minute just before we get in the car, and you go and put on your T-shirt so that we're matching. 
great. No, it's it terrible. Wasn't quite That's that what sinister. really old people do. You're not supposed to look like each other till you're 80. And yeah. then you wear matching clothes. I know, but if it didn't bother you so much, I wouldn't do it. But well, it, it bothered me. People were laughing at us. People were laughing at us. We're not. I was a I was the object of public scorn. Yeah, because people really care that two people almost 50 have the same t-shirt on. Not almost 50. Well, yeah. I'm almost 50. <laughs> yeah, you are. You are, and I am. Now living on the sixth floor of life, mm-hmm. right? That's what 50s are. That's the sixth. I'm on the sixth, sixth floor. Decade. The view's better up here, Yeah. but the air okay. is thinner. Oh, I'll stay down yeah. here as long as I can. Yeah, that makes, you know, I used to say that your 50s would be the fifth floor, but that's not true because then from zero to 10, you're in the basement. True. But maybe yeah. that's accurate. Maybe you're learning life skills before you can get to the first floor. I don't know. Mm. Whatever it is, the air is awfully thin up here. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about the temple in the last days, and we're looking at the idea that there's this consistent story all through the Bible where the big problem in prophecy is God's own people. So the Philistines capture the ark under Eli. Uh, the Babylonians sack the temple after God's people abandon the covenant. Mm-hmm. You know, they desolated God, so the temple is left desolate. And um, they didn't desolate God. They abandoned God. So the Roman sack of Jerusalem, Jesus says that's it. Here's what God is saying. Look, if you don't want me, I'm not going to force this. I'll leave. Right. Right. But right. then I'm going to leave you to what you want. And what you want is what the Gentile nations have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the thing that bothers me now is that when you write books about prophecy in the 21st century, it seems that a lot of authors change the story to blame outside influences for all the problems that emerge among God's people in the last days. Right. And any time we begin to change how God uses a concept in the Bible, we have to question whether or not we're still on the right track. Mm -hmm. Why are we rewriting what the abomination of desolation means? So let's go back to Isaiah. We did that an episode ago, and there's a lot more we haven't touched on there. And in chapter 3 of Isaiah, we have this painful description of a situation where God's own people cannot find decent human leadership anymore. The country's falling apart because they've let go of God. They've abandoned abandoned the terms of the covenant, and they've patterned themselves after their Gentile neighbors. They're supposed to win those people to the truth, but now they're imitating them instead. Right, right. And so in Isaiah 3, the people are running around looking for someone, anyone really, who might be smart enough to run the country, and, you know, they're just not finding anyone. And the people they want in leadership, well, those are the people who have proven to be financially successful. Yeah. You know, which is not at all what God established for the running of his covenant nation. And even those rich and successful people are saying, look, I've got nothing left, so I really can't help you. No, that's right. You know, this nation is such a mess. Yeah, you're looking at us because we're prosperous and and you want us to run the country. We can't do it anymore. That's in Isaiah 3. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite parts of that chapter is the point where God says, essentially, look, you know something? All you have left to run your country is a bunch of children and babies. That's literally, you know, that's the Boonster paraphrase, but that's what he says. Right. And I know I'm going to get some mail for saying this, but I'm going to let it out of my mouth anyway. Um, How often haven't I wondered why so many people who now run for office here in this country seem to have sort of the same problem, a childish view of the world? And I don't mean that as a partisan thing. Uh, You can look at any 
political party on either side of the aisle. And it seems like human leadership is failing us at an increasing level. We're, we're looking around. Where's the grown-up in the room? Who can actually run this place? And we can't find those people. Now, I'm not, that's not a political statement. It just seems to be that human civilization is coming unraveled as we get down into the last grass, gasp of human history. And, you know, if you took that to be political, write your complaint letters to Gene Boonstra, Box 999, Loveland, Colorado. I'll but, forward them straight to you. Yeah. Here's no the problem. problem. They wanted to be like the Gentile nations, which proclaimed to be self-sufficient. Right. And so when they try to be self-sufficient, they discover human beings don't have the answer. And Isaiah goes on to say that in spite of our human rebellion, God will still eventually uh, take his plan to reestablish his kingdom in this world, and he's going to take that plan all the way down to the end zone. Mm -hmm. He's going to do it. No matter what we do, no matter how much we rebel, no matter how much the human race turns against God, the kingdoms of this world, and this is one of the big messages in prophecy, the kingdoms of this world are going to vanish, and God will restore this world to the way it was, the way he made it in the first place. Right. So, Listen to this. After three painful chapters showing us how Israel had gone against God, God now holds out a beacon of hope. Right, right, which is always the way that prophecy seems to work. God shows us the reality of our own situation, and then he gives us that hope, Yeah, which is another way that Bible prophecy sometimes gets misrepresented, I believe. Um, oftentimes we dwell on the doom and the gloom and the destruction, that first part, but then people sort of miss the point. God's going to win, and the future is positive. The future is bright. That's right. No matter how much we mess up, God's plan is to restore it, and the big question is whether or not we want in on his restoration. Right. That's still a choice for that us. Hope so. is, that hope is yeah. always there. So here comes the powerful ray of hope. Three chapters of here's what you've done wrong, and then in chapter four. Now we're going to slow down and parse our way through five important verses. Excellent. Okay, Isaiah 4 and verse 2. Here we go. Go and get your Bible if you're listening at home, because it, I know I'm going to read it, but it helps to open your Bible and follow along. It sort of implants it in your memory. Isaiah 4 verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And of course, you'll notice the translators have capitalized the word Branch, branch right? right? Because it's a reference to Jesus. Mm -hmm. In Isaiah 11, the prophet tells us explicitly that the coming Messiah would be a branch that grows out of the roots of Jesse, a messianic king that comes in the tradition of, of, of David. Mm -hmm. So, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Even though God's people have reduced the nation of Israel to a pathetic shadow of its former glory, the plant that God placed in the crossroads of the ancient world as a witness to his love is not dead and Messiah is still going to come. Are you about to cough? <laughs> I I was, but I'm, I think I'm you re okay. I saw you reach for the cough button. <laughs> yeah, I Go did. ahead. I did. No, I'm good. All right. I'm so good. what we have in Isaiah 4, God is saying the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and God's people, even though they've ruined their witness, God will not let the plant that he put in Jerusalem die. Messiah is still going to come. Right, right. And so no matter how badly we rebel, no matter how much we wander from our covenant relationship with God, nothing is ever going to stop his plan to bring about that fully restored kingdom of Christ. Exactly. And what remains for you and for me is to decide whether or not we want in the kingdom, because God still doesn't force people. It is still our choice. Right. We can't stop the kingdom of Christ from coming. 
We can't do that. That is going to happen. That's one of the major points in prophecy. The kingdoms of the world, I mean, you read a book like Daniel, here comes Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and the divided Roman Empire, and so on. They all come and go, but at the end of the day, God blows the whistle and says, enough of that, I'm going to bring in my kingdom. We can't stop that, right? We can't stop it. But we can exercise freedom of choice because God has given us that privilege. We can choose to accept the gift of Christ and enter into a covenant relationship of God and become part of his eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in Isaiah's day, Israel had gone off the rails, but Messiah was still going to come. Calvary was still going to happen. And the second coming is still going to happen too where the stone of Daniel 2 comes and smashes all the kingdoms of this world and replaces them with Christ's kingdom. So Mm -hmm. let's get back to the passage, Isaiah 4, and we'll probably just start on this today like we always do and (laughs) run out of time. But this is worth looking at for a few minutes um, because, well, it's it's crucial, Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord Jesus shall be beautiful and glorious. Jesus is going to come. Mm -hmm. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Mm. In other words, the covenant kingdom is still coming, and God will make that kingdom fruitful and prosperous for those who escape wickedness that human beings brought on the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the only way to escape is through the blood of Christ, to come back into the covenant of grace under the banner of the cross and choose to be part of his everlasting kingdom. Right. And, And just so we understand that this language is being used for a problem that existed many centuries ago, but also applies to us, Right. we're going to find out in a few minutes that the language Isaiah uses actually shows up later again in the book of Revelation. You so. know, and, and that happens so often, doesn't it? Yeah. That the book of Revelation it uses the same language in the Old Testament, and it really helps us to understand right. how those historical events um, were prophetic to the future. And, and when we read the Bible in its entirety, we can understand prophecy but, so much better. Bingo. And and the big idea, again, is that the problem is internal. Yes. In Revelation, we have the same problems in the Christian church that Israel had in their camp. That's what it's trying to tell us. All right. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 3. Okay. And it shall come to pass. Notice it doesn't say it might come to pass. God's going to do this, right? It -hmm. shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. So what do you get when you flip over to the book of Revelation in chapter 21? Now you have something called the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven and who's inside God's covenant people. They are safe inside that city and they are called holy and they're living forever in the presence of Christ. Mm -hmm. These are the people whose names are written in Revelation, in the book of life. Revelation 13 says their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Mm -hmm. And they're recorded among the living because they will live forever. They have eternal life. Eternal life, life, right. And when does that ultimately happen? Mm. When God has permanently dealt with sin and suffering forever. So we have the same thing happening in Isaiah that happens in the last days. This is really important to understanding why the temple figures in the book of Revelation. The same issues are at play. So if you want to understand it, you got to understand what was happening back in those days, mm-hmm. right? So God has a, has a plan to permanently deal with sin and suffering, or as Isaiah 4 verse 4 puts it, when the Lord has washed away the filth 
of the daughters of Zion, just mm-hmm. in case anyone has any doubt as to how repugnant sin seems in a holy universe, mm-hmm. the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of what? Judgment. Judgment, and by the spirit of burning. Now, what do we see in Bible prophecy happening right before Jesus comes? Well, if you go to Daniel chapter 7, you have the rise and fall of worldly kingdoms, and at the end of all of that, there is a judgment scene Mm -hmm. where the angels gather around the throne of God, and they weigh everything. And what's really on trial is not every individual human being, although our records are there, The judgment decision is that the Son of Man, who is Jesus, is declared the rightful heir to this world. He gets his kingdom. So God washes away sin by the spirit of judgment, and then his people are safe in the city of Jerusalem. The same thing happens in Revelation as happens in Isaiah. They're playing the music, which means I have talked too much, and it is time Time for for a little commercial break. So pay attention to this announcement. We'll be right back. Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, (laughs) Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers, Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from director Doug at discoverymountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's discoverymountain.com. During the break, I, I found myself singing a song and I don't know where it comes from. Let it go, let it go, let it go. What Do you want that? to know where it comes from? Yeah, probably not. Uh, I, I think that's, I'm not positive. I feel like it's a Disney movie. Though. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, exactly. I am not a fan of animated Disney movies. I, I hate them, not. but here I find. What's it from? I don't, I'm not sure, but isn't it about the, isn't it from the movie where the, the sisters? Frozen. Oh, Frozen. That's it. Re- Reuben has young kids. All right. Knows. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've never watched it, and yet I'm singing that tune. That must be like everywhere or something. It was a few years ago. You're just your brain's a little a couple years behind. Let it go. Times. Let it go. Let it go is a good theme <laughs> for a guy who's in his fifties. Yeah. Just let everything go. Let it all go. Let your belly go. Let your eyesight go. <laughs> but, Mother Nature takes care of that. Yeah. It just you don't have to let it go. It just goes. Goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We're talking about the abomination of desolation, the role of the temple in the last days, and we're going very slowly and methodically, probably to the frustration of everybody listening out there. That means you're just going to have to listen to the entire series, get out your Bible, and follow along carefully. We're only kind of making one major point per episode. And, well, this is almost two episodes now on the major point. 
is that the problems of Israel repeat in the book of Revelation, which tells us that the church experienced the same problems that Israel does and that Mm -hmm. the problems are internal. And we're looking at Isaiah 4, where you see God promising those who are left over, recorded among the living, will be safe in Jerusalem. And the same thing happens in the book of Revelation. God's people are safe in the new Jerusalem. After God has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, we read in Isaiah 4, verse 4, by the spirit of judgment. And again, the judgment takes place and if you read Daniel 7, right before Jesus comes to claim his kingdom, mm-hmm. right? And it's all because we sinned and abandoned God. So Jesus becomes one of us. He receives in himself the judgment due against sin at the cross of Calvary. And then he becomes the new head of the human race. Paul calls him the last Adam, or theologians call him a second, second Adam. Adam. Right. So Jesus, as the son of man, the only sinless human being who has ever lived. He's God in human flesh. Jesus receives that kingdom back in our behalf. And then the amazing thing is, is he offers to let us not just move in, but to reign and rule over it with him. Mm -hmm. You see that language everywhere. Look at Revelation 3, verse 21. Mm -hmm. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He's not just letting us in you know, squeak by. He is one of us as a human being. He inherits this planet back and he gives it all back. He says, you know, human beings were given dominion over this planet. Why don't you share dominion with me this time? I'm giving it all back. Which is just remarkable, isn't it? It, It's hard to almost get my head around the fact that not only does he save us, redeem us, but he he restores us to that level and that relationship with him. Right. Now, look mm-hmm. at this one. It's also in chapter 3 of Revelation. It's another one that's kind of related, but now the temple shows up, and this is a big idea. Okay. Because we're talking about the temple in the last days yes. and its role. And we discovered that in the Old Testament, the role of the temple was that God abandoned the covenant, so God abandoned the temple. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Israel abandoned the covenant, so God had... There you I, go. You did got I get, it. Did I see anything that made sense there? Anyway. Yeah. That's why the temple was left desolate. Revelation 3, verse 12, Jesus promises, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and they shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. Yeah. So we really do see a last day fulfillment of this promise that was made all the way back in Isaiah's day, we have God promising promising that he will correct absolutely everything to pass through the judgment and then cleanse his people so that we can live forever in his presence. Right. Now, here's something we should probably notice because this is important in an ongoing study of the temple in the last days. The emphasis that you find in the book of Revelation is not on an earthly temple like Mm -hmm. it was in the Old Testament. Right. It's not on a temple that is found in the literal city of Jerusalem, but we're now talking about what the Bible calls the everlasting temple of God, where we live in God's presence forever in the new new Jerusalem. The focus is not on the old Jerusalem. And that's a theme we will pick up again on another day and spend a lot of time looking at it because this is so important to understand. This is where we've gone astray in the last 200 years in our understanding of last day events in Bible prophecy. Most of the Christian world today in the West is focused on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem ever since 1948 or so. But that is not at all where the book of Revelation shines the spotlight. It's not focused on the earthly mount of the temple. It's not focused on that earthly building, which has been in ruins since the day the Romans took it down. 
that should be another big red flag to students of Bible prophecy. Why is it that the focus in Revelation is somewhere other than where we're putting our focus? Absolutely. That's not right. right. All right. right. Let's just keep going, though. We're going to get back to all these themes. Just put them in the back of your memory, and we will study them more and more as we keep going through this series on the temple. Okay. Verse 5, Isaiah 4. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies, listen to this, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. Ah. Ah, what's that? That's a reference to Israel and the presence of God among them in the Old Testament. Yes. Well, this is Old Testament, of course, but that's what it's talking about, the presence of God among his people. Mm-hmm. So what God is promising is an eventual return to the way that things were. He will put his presence among his people yet again. Right? God led Israel out of Egypt, took them all the way across the wilderness into the land of promise, and he accompanied them the whole way, pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was also a type of God's plan to take us all out of the slavery of sin and to escort us into the kingdom of Christ, the heavenly promised land. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, Sean, Paul is really explicit. Um, He mentions this. It's in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, that the cloud that followed Israel across the desert, that it was was Christ himself. Exactly. It Mm -hmm. was Christ. And so you get this whole Exodus theme. I'll take you out of the land of slavery, the land of bondage, and bring you into my presence in the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. That prefigures what God eventually does for us, bringing us into the new Jerusalem and taking us out of this world of sin. And Christ himself escorts us into his presence to dwell there forever. This is why the language of Exodus is such a big feature in the book of Revelation. It's there all over the place. You have the redeemed of God singing the song of Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15. That's the same song Israel sang when they crossed the Red Sea and were safe from the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. So what Isaiah is promising, you know, as Israel is falling to pieces, he's promising that God will still replace human kingdoms with the everlasting kingdom of Christ. In Isaiah's day, they were becoming more like Gentile nations than the kingdom of Christ, but he is promising that they are going to go back to what God planned. He is going to get this plan done. And even though that you and I, as human beings, have pushed God away, and we have done that again and again and again and again, it hasn't changed God's deepest desire. Mm -hmm. And God's deepest desire is to dwell among his people. It broke his heart when we were escorted out of the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis. He used to come and walk with us in the cool of the evening. We were built for his company and his enjoyment and to reflect his glory, and we tossed that away. Then he builds a plan where he can dwell among his people in the temple. And, um, and again, we wander away, and we want to be like the Gentile nations. Instead of winning them to the truth, we want to become like them. And we do it again and again and again. No matter how much we push against God, his desire to live among us and have that relationship restored, Paul would call it to be reconciled to us, to have us reconciled to him, he still wants still the deepest desire of his heart. He wants to restore everything so he can be our God and we can be his people. Mm -hmm. God wants a relationship so intimate that he uses marriage as a symbol to explain that relationship again and again and again, all throughout the Bible. Um, In particular, I'm thinking of, well, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. In Ephesians Mm -hmm. chapter 5, the relationship between Christ and the church is compared to the relationship between husband and and wife. Mm -hmm. So Isaiah finishes this little segment like this. Let's look at Isaiah 4 verse 6. Go ahead with that one. 4 verse 6, Isaiah. 
and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. Yeah, so again, notice that this promise to be with us forever and dwell in our midst, this promise is written in the language of the temple or the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And the key focus here has little to do with the building itself and everything to do with the relationship with God. The key focus is not actually rebuilding an earthly structure. God is looking down the road to the ultimate reality when he takes up permanent residence with us forever in our midst right here on earth. Mm -hmm. And this is where we should go over to the book of Revelation and compare notes. Yes, absolutely. And I'm guessing that you are going to go to Revelation chapter 14. And am I right? you'd be right, because you're looking <laughs> at the show notes or because you know me so well after. Yes, must be that one. Yeah, because we dress alike and we think alike. <laughs> I'm going to get a jacket just like yours. I think I'm going to take revenge and dress exactly like you. That would be hilarious. I wouldn't mind at all. (laughs) All right. Yeah, Revelation 14. You're right, because in Revelation 14, we find—and this is kind of a focal point in the book of Revelation, this chapter—and we find a group of people who, in the last days, are banking on Isaiah's promise to actually be fulfilled that God will dwell among us forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And look at how the Bible describes them. This is ground zero in the book of Revelation. It's the key turning point in the whole narrative of this book. Because when you read the chapter before Revelation 13, you have another big disaster among God's people. You've got the first and second beasts who are really the greatest sort of culmination of human kingdoms, the the ultimate manifestation of human pride in kingdoms. It uses the same imagery that Daniel uses to describe Gentile nations. It uses beasts or Mm -hmm. Animals. animals. Mm -hmm. And what it's telling us is that God's people in the New Testament era, again, are going to make the same mistakes that we made in the Old Testament era. And the church has no justification in this day and age for distancing ourselves from Israel and saying we would never do that because we do exactly the same thing, particularly when we mix secular politics and personal concerns with the religion of Christ. So that's what we have in Revelation 13. We have the ultimate in human kingdoms standing in opposition to God's plan for the human race. Then in Revelation 14, you get this glimmer of hope like Isaiah holds out. We find a people who are waiting for Christ to come, and they're banking on the new Jerusalem, not the literal old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, where once again we will live in the immediate presence of God. So let's take a look at that in Revelation 14, and we're going to read the first five verses. We'll never get that done before the break, but let's peek at them anyway. Uh, Gene, go ahead with verse 1. Okay. Revelation 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, the mountain of God, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Right, so these are, again, the people who remain in Zion, safe with the Lamb. On Mount Zion is in Jerusalem, and they're safe in the city, just like Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 4. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that what Isaiah predicted ultimately does come to pass, and we find it described with God's people in the New Testament era. And I heard, verse 2, a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, 
a new song before the throne. Listen to the irony. As we're talking about harps and singing, the, <laughs> the music start. starts, which tells me that it's time for a commercial break. So we're going to leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger here. We're looking at Revelation 14, and we're discussing the idea that the same issues manifest themselves in Revelation as manifested themselves among the teachings of the Old Testament prophets. It's the same problem in the last days. The big problem is not an external problem, and the focus isn't really the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem and what happens in God's eternal heavenly temple. We'll be right back after this. Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993. As you may know, The Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com give. Do you know what else falls apart in old age? What's that? Your brain. Your brain falls (laughs) apart. I used to be, you know, relatively sharp, and that's a, you know, comparatively sharp on a very large scale. But now I was was thinking back to the last segment of the show, and I'm not sure I understood what I was saying. (laughs) You make good sense. Really? I think we make good sense. Okay, but here's the gist of what we're saying. All the focus in recent years, and I keep repeating myself to death on this, but this is a big thing. This is a big deal. Our focus in recent history has been entirely on this idea, in the West anyway, Mm -hmm. that they have to rebuild the Jerusalem temple in order for Jesus to come. Mm -hmm. And it's been laying desolate since AD 70 when the Romans sacked it. Um, and we've got some pretty bad ideas that made their way into the mix, this idea that outsiders are the problem and that Antichrist is an outsider and so on. But the language of Revelation is so clear that we're describing the same problems Isaiah describes in Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 3 and Isaiah 4, and that the solution is the same. God restores his people, his people. The Bible's addressed to us, not to, you know, it, it describes the sins of outsiders. There's no question. Every so often God says, you know, when you go into the land of Canaan, these tribes are wicked and here's what they're wicked about. Mm-hmm. But the big problem is us. And it, 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 the focus seems to be on outsiders today and the focus seems to be on rebuilding the literal temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But when you read Revelation, you see that it's describing the same problems Israel had for Christians today. God's people have the same issues. Mm-hmm. And the focus isn't really on an earthly building, but the relationship with God, the covenant relationship with God. And it talks more about an eternal temple, living in God's presence forever. Um, And that was the point of the temple among God's people in the Old Testament, as God's presence was among them. As you pointed out, it was Christ that followed them. And now um, the point is our eternal presence in God's midst forever. And we were reading Revelation 14, which is God's answer to the human problems and kingdoms described in Revelation 13. And in this chapter, you have God's people standing on Mount Zion. There's the mountain of God in Jerusalem. 
and they have the father's name written on their foreheads. They're so closely identified with him that his character is being reflected in them. And we got as far as verse, where were we? Verse Verse three, three. I believe. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So it says in Revelation 14, verse three, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Oh yeah, that's where we were because then the music for the commercial started right there. (laughs) Right. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne. Now, where is the throne of God? Mm -hmm. Well, God is described at least nine times in the Bible as the one who dwells between the cherubim. Now, in the Old Testament temple, the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place was a symbolic representation of God's throne. It was God's throne. And in the old days, you know, prior to the Babylonian captivity, the presence of God would literally come down in there between the golden cherubim sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But that was a symbol of a much higher reality, God's throne in heaven. So here are God's people singing a song before God's throne. We are back in God's presence, which is the point of the temple. Right. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. Ooh, we could do a whole study on who they are. But anyway. And the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This is talking about those readmitted into the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And they have to be redeemed. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, this is not talking about literal sexuality. Symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, sexuality gone wrong is used in a, a symbolic sense in Bible prophecy to describe spiritual unfaithfulness right. or spiritual adultery. Right. Uh, these are the ones, verse 4, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So some people talk about these people standing, the 144,000, as if it's a special sinless group that has never, ever sinned. And I know of groups of people that try to make it read that way, but it says they're redeemed. These are redeemed sinners. They also had to find forgiveness, and they were also covered by the blood of the Lamb. They had to be covered by the sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. Now, you remember, maybe because I barely remember, when we were discussing Isaiah 4, it said God would save his people in Jerusalem, but he would have to purge the sins of his people and everyone would have to pass through a judgment. Right. But on the other side of the judgment, they would stand in Zion in his presence where he would provide for all their needs. That's what happens in Revelation 14 in the very end. Right, right. And you know, this really underlines the fact that if you want to understand the key prophetic books of the Bible, like Revelation, for example, you have to become conversant in the language of the Old Testament. Because whether Old or New Testament, um, the bottom line issues, they're the same. Yeah. And we find then the language, the terminology is the same. And so the need to have that gift of Christ, that forgiveness, it becomes... It's all important. It absolutely is. So it's not as if God had one way of salvation for the Old Testament Jews. We talked about this a little bit already. And then a completely different method of salvation for Christians in New Testament times. The language used throughout the Bible from beginning to end makes it clear that these are the same issues. These are the same sins, the same situations. Um, And ultimately, of course, there's the same solution. Yeah. You know, I teach a public workshop on Bible prophecy, and it's a hefty course. It's, you know, it's a 24-port course. It takes 24 hours to go through it. It's called, we call it Revelation Speaks Peace, because really the good, there's good news in prophecy. It's not the story of God trying to wipe us out. Right. But one of the things that I've discovered over the years is that people always want a shortcut. 
um, they want a preacher to tell them what Bible prophecy says. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have so much, uh, dare I say, foolishness in the way of religious fiction, movies, and books and stuff dealing with prophecy that sort of pick one or two details and then write a flight of fancy um, based on that. And people run with that because, honestly, we're not the Bible students we were in previous generations. Our forefathers, I mean, you go to somebody like Daniel Webster or Benjamin Franklin in this country, and you go back to the 18th century, they would get up in a meeting and suddenly quote an entire passage of the Bible from memory. They mm-hmm. knew the book. Mm-hmm. And we've let go of that. We read kind of like a buffet. I'll take a verse here. I'll take a verse there. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I'll skip True. that verse because I don't like spinach. You know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so people get a little frustrated with me when I tell them, if you want to understand prophecy, they come to this course, ooh, he's going to lay it all out for us. No, what I'm going to do is give you the tools to understand it. And the thing that frustrates some people is when I say, if you want to understand Bible prophecy, you have to read the whole book. The whole book? Man, that's a lot of reading. Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. But the people who wrote you know, the New Testament, John, who wrote Revelation, was conversant in the Old Testament, and he quotes it left, right, and center. Of course. Paul quotes the Old Testament left, right, and center. Yeah. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. If you want to know what's going on, if you want to know what the real issues are, you have to read the whole thing. Because one of the big things that shows up in Revelation is that the problem is always the same. And as you just said, the solution is always the same. Yeah, and we and we see a pattern too. This is why I've really appreciated spending time in the Old Testament books, Chronicles, Isaiah, the prophets, and the history, because it shows us a pattern that continues through Revelation, which is God shows the history. He he reminds the people of what the issues are yeah. and why yeah, exactly. the issues exist. And and the issues are always with us, his people. But then he he says, this these are the consequences. But here is the hope. Here is how you can be restored to me because that is right. my goal. I want to restore you to me. And we see that all through Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel. We see that through Isaiah. And then, of course, we see that again in Revelation. Yeah. Same problems, same, same, same solution. Pattern. It's same the same God. pattern. And mm-hmm. so any book that writes about all the outside problems is probably missing the point of what Bible prophecy is trying to convey. Right. This is God bringing his people back to him. And you mentioned, you know, there's not one way of salvation for the Jews and another for Christians. That's another thing that kind of grew out of dispensational thinking. It's another big red flag that I see in some of the modern theories on Bible prophecy. Because ever since this dispensational way of thinking showed up in the 1800s, I keep hearing again and again and again this motif. Jews are saved by obedience to the law. Christians are saved by grace. That's nonsense. That's utter biblical nonsense. I can't state that often enough. Nothing could be further from the truth. Whether you are an Old Testament believer, and believer is the key word, whether you're an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer, salvation has always happened the same way. Right. It is by grace, through faith, in the blood of Christ. Yes. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross by faith, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It hadn't happened yet. So God gave them the temple mm-hmm. and its symbols, the sacrificial lamb, the role of the priest. He gives them these symbols to look forward so they can understand the cross in advance and respond to God by faith. Right. Today, we look back to the cross historically because it has already taken place, right? 
And, and, and so that's why God at that moment reaches into the temple, rips the veil in two. There's no need for the temple anymore at that point because the reality has come. Right. The temple was a forward-looking symbol. So you got to ask the big question, why? Why would God rebuild the temple in the last days as if the cross had never happened? Yeah. That yeah. is a huge red flag. It- you know, it doesn't really make sense, does it? Especially when we put it in the context uh, of what we've read in Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So God reaches into the temple, rips the veil in two. He signals to the whole world the earthly temple is gone. Right. Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. The Romans come in A.D. 70. And if you read Daniel 9 carefully, this is also predicted that after Messiah is crucified— someone would come and desolate the temple. It's talking about the Romans in that case, and we should I probably shouldn't have opened that can of worms. That'd be a whole show. <laughs> Another but, time. Yeah, but the temple gets sacked because the need for the temple, or at least the sacrificial system, all the lambs and the animals and the symbols, it stops. Mm-hmm. It stops when Jesus dies on the cross four decades before the sack of the temple. The real Lamb of God has come. He's died for our sins. And then the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus returned to heaven to be our great high priest, not in an earthly sanctuary, but in a sanctuary that exists in heaven. Right, right. So really this whole idea that God has to rebuild the temple or the earthly sanctuary to restart the sacrificial system somehow, it's not biblical. No, it's not. I mean, why would God do that? I mean, just let's stop and ask. If you read the whole Bible, it becomes nonsensical. Mm -hmm. Why would God return to something that could never save you in the first place? The book of Hebrews is really crystal clear. Get a Bible. Read Hebrews 10 verse 4. It says the blood of bulls and goats could never never save us in the first place. Why? It's because they were symbols pointing forward to the real Lamb of God, Messiah. So now that Messiah has come, now that Christ has died for us at the cross of Calvary, now that he has secured our atonement, why would God go back to the sacrificial system, which would be a denial of what his son did for us at the cross? There's no reason to rebuild the temple. doesn't make sense. Right. Now, Will somebody ever rebuild the temple? Who knows? Who knows? There's enough volatility in the Middle East that you just don't know what's going to happen. Maybe one of these days somebody will attack the Dome of the Rock and rebuild the temple or make some claim that the temple belongs sort of next door. Whatever they do, they might rebuild it. Who knows? Human beings have done a lot of things. But I'll tell you this. It is not the prophetic plan of the Bible. It doesn't make sense. So let me read my favorite passage in closing because they're going to run out of time. Okay. Right? This is where Christ has come, and at long last, he is takes us into his presence in the new Jerusalem. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea than I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice, here it is, from heaven. From where? From heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What's the temple in Bible prophecy? It's from heaven. It comes down from heaven. It is God establishing his presence forever among his people. Jesus in human form, fully God, fully human, forever and ever. Will the temple ever get rebuilt? Maybe. You know, maybe it will but it wouldn't be part of God's prophetic plan. The focus is on the relationship with God and our presence in his presence forever. Oh, look at that. We're out of time. We're down to 10, 9, 8. Until next time, I'm Sean. 
And I'm Jean. And uh, you've been listening to Disclosure. God bless, and we'll study again together soon. 